Welcome to Game Changers. I'm your host, Tom Parkin. Thanks for joining. What's Canada's role in the Yemen war? We've seen and read about the horrors, air bombings of schools and hospitals, hunger, cholera. Some commentators call it a civil war, but given the significant external involvement, that doesn't seem right. Researcher and political economist Anthony Fenton is following the war very closely, including the role of the Saudis, Emirates, and NATO countries, including Canada. And he joins us now to talk with us about who's involved in the Yemen war and what Canada is or isn't doing to stop the conflict. Anthony Fenton, welcome to Game Changers. Thank you for having me on, Tom. Probably everyone listening is aware of the war in Yemen and Saudi involvement. Uh, The war broke out in 2015, and we've read about uh, terrible violence, uh, targets uh, of of bombing, aerial bombing, uh, our school buses and hospitals. We've read those stories. There's been uh, widespread hunger, uh, the world's worst cholera outbreak in modern history, apparently. But start by telling us just a little bit about what sparked the civil war, and, and why did the Saudis get involved? Yeah, of course, with uh, with most conflicts, the one in Yemen is very complex and it has deeply historical roots. Uh, this is the third civil war that they've had there uh, in a little over 50 years. Um, and it's common by now to refer to the war as one, as you did, but that began in 2015. But even in the context of more recent history, we have to keep in mind that uh, the previous uh in Yemen uh, for, for 33 years, uh, was led by Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, from 1990 until he was ousted in 2012. Um, via, uh, and he was ousted via the, basically the Arab Spring, the uprising that we saw throughout the uh, Middle East, North Africa, uh, in 2011, 2012. Uh, his government fought six wars against the Houthis, uh, the Houthi rebels. Uh, who are, are the ones fighting uh, the, the Saudi-led coalition today. Uh, he fought those wars between 2004 and 2010. So in many ways, um, this is kind of a continuation of a conflict that's existed for a long time. Um, but uh, but Saleh was ousted in 2012, uh, but he was never forced to leave the country, uh, while his uh, well, Hantik successor, Mansur Hadi, who was his vice president, uh, and remains the, the president in exile, uh, he was selected to form a government of national unity, and then uh, was to lead a two-year transitional period. Um, and this, this process of the transition was essentially overseen and underwritten by Saudi Arabia uh, and their partners in the GCC. And, of course, with Western powers looming uh, in the background. Um, and when that transitional period expired uh, in 2014, there were supposed to be elections. Uh, they never took place. And then uh, Hadi made some, uh, he was kind of hamstrung in many ways, you could say, but he made some critical moves, uh, mistakes, you could say, that ignited the spark that saw this latest phase of the Civil War erupt in 2015. He, uh, for example, raised fuel costs and enraging the population enough that basically nobody stood in the way of the the Houthi takeover of Yemen's capital, Sana'a. This led to an effective coup, which saw Hadi flee to Saudi Arabia in March of 2015, whereupon he requested uh, the military support of Saudi Arabia in order to restore him to power and to oust the Houthis from uh, the seat of power in Yemen. Um, Not too long ago, I was reading a very uh, interesting book on the complexities of the conflict by Marika Brandt, Uh, History of the Houthi Conflict, and she basically says, 
Operation Decisive Storm, which is you know the name of the, the operation, the Saudi-led coalition response, uh, was a response of a Saudi military-led alliance to the occupation of the capital by uh, the Houthis, otherwise known as Ansar Allah. The Houthis, listeners should know, are part of a Zaidi Shia movement originating from the northern government, uh, Sadah, uh, adjacent to the Saudi border. They agitate against the economic marginalization of their northern region and of the Zaidi minority in particular, uh, the spread of Sunnism in Yemen promoted by Saudi Arabia and the cooperation of the Yemeni government with the United States. Saudi was a long-time you know, partner with the U.S. in the so-called war on terror and against the uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so um, we, lastly, we should recall that Saudi Arabia had not only seen uh, the the succession of its new king a couple of months before this war, this outbreak in March 2015, um, alongside his son, who had quickly become second in line to the throne, MBS, as he's known, mm-hmm. the, the son of King, king Solomon. Um, they, they must have quickly determined that in Yemen they had an opportunity to consolidate their power internally as well as regionally by rallying their security and uh, forces and population behind an intervention, essentially a coalition of the willing uh, in Yemen. And as we've seen, they've been unable to achieve any of their most basic objectives. Uh, Sana'a remains occupied. The important port of Hodeida remains under Houthi control. Uh, and really for some time now, what we've seen is a situation of a stalemate. Yeah. And uh, so this war continues continues on. Donald Trump gets into the picture uh, after his election. His first foreign visit is, puts a stop in the Saudi kingdom in May 2017, where President Trump and the Saudi king uh, sign a letter of intent for the Saudis to immediately buy $110 billion in military equipment exported from the United States, a total of $350 billion worth of military equipment over a 10-year period. And Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the deal was to offset Iranian influence in the Gulf region. Um, what do we know about these equipment sales, this, this military deal? How much of that has actually been uh, being uh, has uh, arrived in the Saudi Kingdom, and is it being deployed uh, in the war in Yemen? And also, what is this link to the Iranian threat, as the Saudis see it anyway? Well, there's no doubt that the U.S. has been the you know, the major supplier of choice uh, militarily for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for decades, um, ever since the sort of retreat of the, the U.K. from the region. Uh, not just term, in terms of material, uh, but also by way of training, uh, you know, hand-in-glove advisory services, you know, the general sort of protection of the ruling family through a, a major permanent military presence in the region. For example, through uh, CENTCOM, this the operating base in the Middle East, um, based largely in Bahrain uh, and in uh, in Qatar, um, due to the sensitivities of uh, of having military bases actually inside Saudi Arabia. They have them surrounded. Um, but these high-profile pronouncements uh, made by Trump were kind of exaggerated in some respects. Uh, as I understand, a, a, a large portion of the $110 billion was like, still to be contracted. And as of the end of uh, 2018, I think a little more than 10% of that figure had been actually contracted. But um, And Trump also probably embellished the amount of job creation connected to these contracts. There's a shock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but having said that, it's clear that, like, operationally, uh, many aspects of the, the Saudi-led war in Yemen are reliant upon the U.S., like whether it's fighter jets uh, or the bombs that they drop, uh, armored vehicles or the mortars that they fire, uh, not to mention, you know, the on-the-ground counseling that the U.S. has given to the Saudi coalition throughout their waging of this, this war on Yemen. And of course, This is material support and also 
uh, tactical and intelligence support, is it? Indeed, yeah. I mean, the only the, the one development we saw of, of note is uh, following the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi last year, the U.S. did a sort of like a fig leaf. Uh, they withdrew the refueling jets uh, that were yes. doing in-air refueling for the Saudi bombers, um, which is interesting because, you know, those re- the, the pilots of those refueling jets are trained by a Canadian company, uh, CAE Inc., based in Montreal. But that's another story. Um, but, of course, uh, other Western countries are or strive to be suppliers to the Saudis in addition to countries like Canada. We have major players like France and the UK, who in the UK, of course, also have like an on-the-ground support directly for the war in Yemen, the very controversial. Um, and we've seen newer entrants such as China enter the phrase. Well, we've seen a lot of their drones uh, in, in the Yemen war and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. But in order to justify such a buildup, it's always easier to have a, a bogeyman. Of course, that has been Iran. Um, Along with U.S., Saudi Arabia has been the loudest proponent of this narrative that they're fighting a proxy war against Iran and Yemen. Um, one way to look at it, essentially, is that Yemen, from the Saudi perspective, is seen as a sort of domino. Um, and if the Houthis are allowed to consolidate their hold on the Yemeni states, uh, then this would be a harbinger of an Iranian hegemony that would continue to spread until the ultimate you know, overthrow of the Saudi ruling family. Uh, in reality, uh, however, I've yet to come across a serious scholar or expert on Yemen who does regard this as a flat-out proxy conflict. Uh, Marika Brandt, who I mentioned before, she says that cooperation between the Houthi rebels and Iran does not amount to the Houthis becoming Tehran's proxies, since the religious and political differences between the two are considerable. And others point to how referring to this as a proxy war is a gross oversimplification of a way more complex situation. But whether it's perceived or real, uh, as uh, the Palestinian academic Adam Hania said, Saudi Arabia and increasingly the UAE have used a ratcheting up of tensions with Iran to, quote, step up their own direct intervention in the regions, putting themselves at the center of any eventual political transitions or settlements. So even though Yemen is the poorest country in the region, surrounded by these wealthier monarchies of the GCC, it is and has long been a, situated a strategically important location where the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden meet. Who controls the routes and the strategic ports of the region is a major question at the heart of this, as uh, indeed we're seeing play out on the other side of the peninsula as we speak in the Strait of Hormuz. Yeah. Now, Canadians will also be aware of our own government's brokerage under the Conservatives, and then later an approval under the Liberals of a deal to export $15 billion in light armored vehicles to the Saudis. There have been concerns expressed about how the Saudis intend to use these labs. Uh, what do you know? What do we know? about uh, these uh, these shipments, uh, are they being used uh, in the Yemen war? Well, there's several problems to this uh, this LAV story. Now, for, for one thing, we should be aware that Canada first entered in negotiations to sell LAVs to Saudi Arabia nearly 40 years ago. The first export permits were approved when Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, was prime minister. The original rationales used to justify the approval of these permits were notable at the time. It was like, uh, Saudi, was, Saudi Arabia was increasingly seen as a stable partner in a volatile region. Um, uh, the fact that Canada uh, imported a lot of Saudi oil was seen as a good way to uh, get leverage uh, in terms of securing contracts to sell them weapons. Um, the need to find secondary outlets beyond the U.S. and the Canadian military itself for the labs. Um, all these things led to a green light from the Trudeau administration that enabled the sort of the rewriting of certain of the Canada's arms export laws to allow for the, sh- the original shipment of the labs in the early 1980s. And the first shipments of the labs began in the early 1990s, and over a couple, th- I think around a couple thousand have been exported over the years. 
And now this is important to note and answer to your question, since uh, in Yemen over the last four years, there's been a multitude of you know what I call lab sightings in battle footage re- released by both Saudi uh, and their Yemeni rebel social media accounts in particular. The conflict, uh, the conflict tracking website Lost Weapons lists about 30 labs that have been uh, disabled or destroyed during the conflict. Mostly they've been seen operating in the border region. Uh, attacks on them have uh, seen Yemeni rebels advancing inside of Saudi Arabia for the most part. But there was an, inve- uh, an investigation undertaken by the Arab Reporters for Investigative Journalism, uh, which have sadly thus far has been completely ignored by the Canadian media, which claims to have evidence that pro-Saudi Yemeni forces have been operating Canadian-made labs, which should raise credible questions about the potential for illegal diversion of these weapons to an unauthorized or sanctioned uh, third party. However, we have yet to see any of the new model labs uh, under the contract that was announced in 2014 and that are being exported as we speak, um, operating in or around Yemen. Now, one of the reasons for this may be that they're so new that they require a different type of uh, an extensive training in order to operate them. Uh, we know that the Belgian company who supplies the turrets uh, or cannons that uh, General Dynamics installs on them in London, Ontario, has set up a campus in northern France where... The labs, after they're shipped from Canada, they go to some of them go to Belgium, where the Saudi forces come in and are trained on them. So uh, this is a process that's ongoing, and uh, as we understand, it's a, it's a ten and plus year contract. Uh, it could be that long before the labs are actually seen in the field. And at this rate, it could be that the war in Yemen will still be uh, raging when that happens, if and when that happens. But it's seldom um, remarked that a certain number of these labs are shipped to Belgium uh, for this purpose or that the, these, these huge cannons are being shipped from, from Belgium to Canada. Uh, but um, the, the one, one other notable thing about the 2014 contract is that part of that contract was that there was a provision for the upgrade of the older model labs. Possibly some of the labs that we've seen at war are, 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 are labs that have been worked on recently by General Dynamics to upgrade them. But uh, like, were they upgraded expressly for the purpose of fighting the war in Yemen? You know, we don't know. Um, but what we do know is that in the memos approving the export of these new labs under Stéphane Dion uh, in 2016, when they were released thanks to the efforts of Quebec lawyer Daniel Turp, they show explicitly that the government uh, bureaucrats who justified the approval of the, the permits uh, cited how the labs might be able to help Saudi Arabia in, quote, countering instability in Yemen. And so, uh, again, we see these rationales down at the level of the, the, the Canadian bureaucracy supporting this so-called alliance or partnership with Saudi Arabia and, uh, and, and clearly coming down on one side of the civil war, and that is the Saudi-backed uh, coalition side. Yeah, and you've also been bringing attention to uh, a little bit of a different uh, armament situation with a company called the Strait Group, which is uh, a uh, company owned by a Canadian. Uh, and in 2012, the United Nations panels accused the Strait Group of exporting armored vehicles to Libya in violation of international sanctions. Later, a Globe and Mail report uh, stated that their typhoon armored vehicles, which were ready to be fitted with weapons, had been shipped to Sudan and South Sudan despite Canadian sanctions. What seems to be the supply route and the role of the Strait Group in the Yemeni war? Well, as far as I can tell, a big part of the street group's business strategy, as we could call it, has been to establish a large, in fact, enormous uh, footprint in the Middle East, from which, from which they've been able to become uh, one of the premier armored vehicle providers uh, to Middle Eastern and 
uh, African security forces, as you mentioned. Now, this push began in the early part of this decade, uh, having, esta- having established themselves in the region in 2005 during the war in Iraq. But already by 2012, they were boasting about having the largest uh, armored, ve- armored vehicle uh, facility in the world, situated in one of the smaller, lesser known of the United Arab Emirates, the Ras Al Khaimah, or RAC. Uh, it has these free trade zones where companies can, can set up shop uh, and uh, operate with fewer, um, you know, having to pay, pay fewer taxes and obviously being strategically located uh, in relation to these, these conflicts. Um, they expanded the facility again in early 2015, just before the outbreak of the, the war in Yemen. Uh, and then in sightings of large numbers of street vehicles began in Yemen in uh, July 2016. A street employee confirmed to me on uh, Twitter that significant quantities were being supplied, quote, helping the GCC role in Yemen and, quote, to protect the South ground troops. The the website that I mentioned earlier, Lost Armor, lists over 100 of the street vehicles that have been damaged or destroyed in Yemen, which suggests that if hundreds if 100 have been damaged, that there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands more that have been that have poured into this conflict. Um, and what's, what's clear is that many of these are being operated by third parties, so pro-government Yemeni forces, as well as some evidence that the Saudis have supplied Sudanese mercenary forces operating inside of Yemen, with, all with street vehicles. And then, but up to this point, two disturbing tendencies have prevailed. One is that no Canadian media outlet, besides a single report by the National Observer, has reported on street groups activities in Yemen, despite being well aware of this situation. And secondly, that the Canadian government has absolved itself of any accountability for street activities based mainly on the fact that their facilities are located inside the United Arab Emirates. In 2013, and again in 2014, Canadian diplomats posted uh, in the UAE proudly referred to street group on their social media accounts as Canada's street group, and yet they're happy to distance themselves from street as their proliferation in these regional conflicts abounds. Uh, with some of the newly ratified policies we're seeing with respect to the uh, Canada's ascension to the arms trade treaty, there's supposedly some new stipulations that will call for some degree of accountability for what for brokers like this man, German Guderov, who owns a street group uh, as a Canadian operating in the United Emirates, Arab Emirates. But whether or not this uh, materializes or comes into force remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. I was just add that the GCC you've talked about, mentioned a couple times, that's the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, which includes, uh, Anthony, help me, is it how, how many countries and which are they that are involved in the security alliance? Uh, in order of importance, probably Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, you've got uh, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, and the Sultanate of Oman. And this is essentially a security alliance in the uh, in the Persian Gulf. Yes, it's supposed to be security and, and, and economic alliance. But yeah, it's been yeah. fractured uh, in the last couple of years because of a blockade of Qatar and sort of isolation mm. of one of their one of their very own members. True. Now, this February, uh, Amnesty International drew attention to the role of the United Arab Emirates. This is the the Persian Gulf country. A small country that includes the cities of uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, saying that Emirati forces received billions of dollars worth of arms from Western states and others, only to siphon them off to militias in Yemen that answer to no one, and this is the quote, that answer to no one and are known to be committing war crimes. Uh, what is this all about? What what seems to be the, the role of the United Arab Emirates in the Saudi war in Yemen? And What's the relationship between UAE and Saudi? Well, as your listeners should be aware, maybe aware, UAE has been shouldering a great deal of the, the ground war aspect of the, the Saudi coalition war in Yemen, while also contributing to unspecified aspects of the, the air war. Um, and they've been based mainly in the south. 
recently, to the surprise of many, the UAE announced a significant, albeit not complete, uh, drawdown of its forces in Yemen, which will create a vacuum that will presumably be filled either by the Saudis themselves or any number of their existing and or possibly newly imported proxy forces. Uh, some suggest that the UAE is uh, astutely distancing itself from an increasingly intractable and unpopular war, uh, especially as it prepares to host the World Expo in uh, next year in 2020. Right. Um, at the same time, uh, we should keep in mind that the UAE proclaimed 2019 the year of tolerance, uh, while on the other hand it's been accused, uh, as you allude to in your, in your statement there, that it's uh, been accused of some rather heinous crimes in its area of operation inside Yemen, accusations of secret prisons, the widespread torture of detainees, uh, etc. Now, it's also widely known that the Deputy Supreme Commander of the United Arab Emirates Armed Forces, who's also the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, he's known as MBZ, he's considered a close friend and trusted advisor of his Saudi counterpart, the son of King Salman, who we mentioned earlier, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, this is not to say that there's no differences of opinion between the Saudis and the UAE. Uh, indeed, as capitalist countries, their firms, you know, no matter how often they're closely tied to the, the, the ruling families, they're often in competition with one another. But strategically, they appear to have more or less maintained an alliance on key issues. Uh, for example, they've been the principal parties imposing this boycott we mentioned on the fellow GCC member Qatar. Uh, likewise, they work together in places like Libya and Syria. And, of course, they share an opposition to Iran, as we also mentioned, and uh, increasingly warm relations with Israel. Uh, but they're both very close to the United States as well, and uh, they've both seen the most drastic military buildup uh, in their capabilities in recent years. And they both have regional as well as global ambitions in terms of the projection of their, of their, finan- of their growing financial power. I mean, we see this even in countries like Canada, where you know, the, the global ports operator, DP World, controls three of Canada's major ports. Um, and uh, the, these types of aspirations are, are, you know, at sort of at the strategic core of of, uh, of what what we've seen transpire in Yemen. And the Strait Group uh, also has production facilities in UAE. Oh yes, absolutely. That is that is it. Ras Al Khaimah UAE, UAE, as well as uh, I think they have two or three uh, production facilities in UAE. Um, indeed, yeah. And so they're they're this Canadian-owned firm is shipping. Uh, producing and shipping out of UAE to these various par- parts in Africa and the uh, Arab Peninsula. Yeah. Yes. So you've also pointed to Canadian interactions with UAE. Uh, and uh, in December of 2017, the Trudeau government signed a Canada-UAE defense cooperation arrangement. And if nobody's heard about that, that's probably a bit by design. And, and in May uh, 2018, just a little bit more than a year ago, Canadian Foreign Minister Christian Freeland met with the UAE Foreign Minister to discuss investment and, as they put in their statement, a uh, Middle East regional security issues. At the same time, the Canada lifted all travel uh, visa travel requirements on UAE citizens. Uh, so, the Jean Charest, the former Quebec Premier, uh, who's also a special envoy for the Canadian government to secure a seat on the UN Security Council is co-chair of the Canada-UAE Business Council. So what? there's a lot of focus going on here for such a small country. What do we know about the goal of Canada's diplomatic efforts and defense arrangements with UAE? Well, up, up until about a year ago, the UAE would have been considered uh, by Ottawa to be Canada's kind of number two Arab partner or, or ally in the Middle East after Saudi Arabia. 
that is uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why one of the first things that the Trudeau government did after the diplomatic fallout with Saudi Arabia in August was make sure that it did not suffer any Qatar like contagion effect. Um, so in order to do so, it, uh, it did not want to see above all else that the UAE or others in the region pile on the Saudi Arabian. So, you know, pseudo boycott of Canada. Uh, and it appears that this has succeeded. Uh, unlike the Saudis, um, I should point out, the uh, the UAE has billions of dollars worth of significant direct investments in Canada. They have investments in the tar sands. They have they run, as I mentioned, three of Canada's most important ports, including the one where uh, the labs are shipped out of um, in uh, St. John, New Brunswick. Um, they have considerable joint investments with Canadian pension funds and asset managers uh, through their sovereign wealth funds. Um, as well, they're, they're, uh, they own Nova Chemicals, a huge chemical company that's recently received significant subsidies from the federal government. As well, there's tens of thousands of Canadians who live and work in the UAE and companies such as Street Group that operate there. Uh, the partnership goes back a long ways to the 1970s. And despite its hiccups, uh, you know, you, some listeners might recall the ouster of the Canadian military base that was staged there during the war in Afghanistan, Camp Barrage. Uh, the relation, the relationship has nevertheless deepened rather dramatically in recent years, beginning most intensively under the Harper government, but uh, continued under Trudeau, as you alluded to, albeit in a sort of a more low-key manner. Uh, these diplomatic efforts, alongside the corporate lobby groups that have been created and the defense cooperation agreement arrangements, in a nutshell, they all contribute to the the goal or achievement of greater market share for Canadian companies across the board, and for even greater UAE investment in Canada. Although far overshadowed by the LAV deal with Saudi Arabia, uh, Canada does have significant tie-ups in the realm of weapon sales to the UAE. For example, uh, Bombardier's surveillance planes for the UAE military. Provincial Aerospace, also uh, out of Newfoundland, has uh, with ties to former Canadian uh, Chief of Defence Ever Kelly, has a major contract with uh, UAE military. There's innumerable Pratt & Whitney Canada engines built for UAE military aircraft. And as I mentioned, you have Montreal-based CAE training um, UAE drone pilots, uh, just to name a few. Um, and so the ongoing future stability of the UAE ruling family through all of this becomes all the more important to the Canadian elites and the Canadian government. For it is to this family and their cronies in the corporate world that future opportunities for Canada lie. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, uh, you're personally involved in a, uh, a campaign uh, around the uh, Canada-Saudi arms uh, exports. Uh, tell us just a little bit about what you're doing there, what you're trying to, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I, you know, you know, as you can allude, I've been uh, just researching, monitoring developments, filing access information requests, etc. Uh, but, but more recently, in the light of seeing sort of uh, an inertia on the part of uh, this this question the, of the the deal, you know, remember after Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in October last year. Uh, the Canadian, uh, by December, you had Justin Trudeau saying solemnly that Canada is trying to find a way out of this contract with Saudi Arabia. We, uh, you know, we're bound by contractual obligations and there could be a billion dollar loss if we, could, if we did extract ourselves from it. But they said that, that since October, the Canadian arms deals with Saudi Arabia have been under review as so we're going on nine yes. months that there's been a supposed review of arms deals with no action. And so, uh, together with Simon Black, a professor at uh, Brock University Labor Studies Department, 
we co-authored an open letter to Hassan Youssef, the, the, the president of the Canadian Labour Congress, calling on the, the CLC to do three things. Number one, publicly oppose the $15 billion arms deal. Number two, to declare military goods destined for Saudi Arabia as hot cargo and therefore not to be loaded onto the ships, the visiting uh, Saudi cargo ships. And three, to spearhead the coordination of labor movement opposition to the deal. Bear in mind that in 2016, the CLC signed on to a different open letter calling for an end of the deal signed by some 90 organizations. But that was the extent of their intervention on the question. And it came with nothing uh, actionable. And since then, we've seen Canadian armored vehicles put to use for pressing Saudi citizens in the eastern provinces. Of course, we've seen uh, upwards of $2 billion or more of the labs exported, of the new labs exported to Saudi Arabia. We've seen no end in sight to the war in Yemen. Of course, we saw the assassination of uh, Khashoggi. Events which have seen other countries, uh, governments suspend or cancel arms permits for Saudi Arabia, sometimes also the UAE. And more recently, though, connected to this campaign is that we've seen trade unions in Europe uh, support the longshoremen's refusal to load. They are actually treating it as hot cargo and Mm -hmm. have refused to load weapons onto visiting Saudi ships, such as in Genoa, Italy, a few weeks ago. These are Saudi ships that have, in, in many cases, Canadian weapons on them, that they're not, they're not, they're refusing to load other, you know, additional weapons. Uh, and we've always seen this uptick in the kind of labor response we'd like to see here. Uh, over a thousand people and organizations have endorsed our letter so far, but we have yet to hear a response from the CLC going on over a month now. And uh, so hopefully this will change as momentum builds. And especially as the federal election approaches, hopefully we'll, this will provide us with an opportunity for a more extended debate on this question. Unlike the last election when, unfortunately, all parties agreed to not discuss it under pressure from the other, the other unions, or the uh, Unifor, who uh, have essentially supported the, the deal. Um, so there, there's some critical questions that we're, that we're trying to open up to debate and see if we can uh, once and for all kind of resolve, resolve this problem. Yeah. Well, Anthony Fenton, thank you so much for helping us understand the conflict and the Canadian role, and good luck in your work. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining Game Changers. Please subscribe and share this podcast. Let's widen the discussion. Canadians deserve it.